Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Well, welcome uh, once again to Crosspoint. We're really glad that you are here with us this morning. My name is Kyle. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, if you, maybe this is your first time with us or first time tuning in if you're watching online, or maybe you haven't been here the last few weeks, we have been working through this series that we're calling Citizen. And uh, really the heart that this series has come out of is there is all kinds of language in scripture that describes Jesus as our king and us as citizens of a kingdom of heaven. Not that somewhere far off that we'll get to one day, but something that we're supposed to embody and live out in the here and now. And we, become, we have become more and more convinced that, especially because of where we live in the world and the time that we live in the world, the idea of being part of a kingdom seems so foreign to us, right? It's just, it's not something we're used to. It's not the government structure we live under. It feels like an, an old model of, of how to live. And so there's, there's some disconnects between where we're at right now and all this language about us being part of a kingdom. And what that can do, we found... Um, certainly I know this to be true of my life, is it makes it easy to embrace some parts of who Jesus is, but then we have the tendency to reject other parts of who he is. So for instance, uh, we, we t- we've talked about this already in this series, that it can be easy for us, especially as North Americans, to really love the idea of Jesus as our savior. He's the one that saves us from our sins and we get to live forever with him. We love that part of the deal. But then when we read scripture that talks about Jesus as our king, eh, I don't know about that. Because that means he gets to call the shots in our lives, and he gets to tell us what to do, and we surrender ourselves over to him. We become obedient to him. But we become so convinced here at Crosspoint, the leadership at Crosspoint and the, the staff at Crosspoint, that if we are really going to live the way that Jesus has called us to live, and if we are really going to make the impact in the world that we are meant to make, we have to understand and have a good, clear picture of what this kingdom is that we're a part of. We can't pretend like we're doing it, but not actually live out these kingdom values that Jesus has laid out for us. And so throughout this series, we're kind of taking time to look at, okay, what does God's kingdom look like then? And how are we supposed to live in it? We've, we've talked about how Jesus is the king and the authority, and we have to be willing to submit ourselves to him. We talked about the reality of the spiritual world, now, this kingdom isn't a physical kingdom. It has a physical effect in this world, but that the battle is, is waged in the spiritual world and things that we can't even see, but we should be aware of as we walk through this. Just last week, Matt talked about uh, our, our book, Scripture, and how God in his graciousness has given us just this really clear account of this is what I'm about. This is what my kingdom is about, and we need to approach it in the right way to be able to see that clearly. And up until this point in this series, it might be possible for us to look at the different things that we've discussed and be able to interpret it in a way that says, this all affects me as an individual, but I can still only let this affect me as an individual. I can do this in isolation. I can put Jesus as king. I can approach scripture well. I can, uh, I can recognize the spiritual world. I can do all that just me. I don't really need other people to be able to accomplish that. That this is only meant to be an individual change. And while the kingdom does bring about personal change, individual change and transformation in the life of a person, uh, today kind of pops the bubble that that's all it does. 
Um, the reality is, and we're going to discover this as we walk through what we're going to look at this morning, is we cannot live as citizens in God's kingdom on our own in isolation. We can't do it. We're just not meant to. This whole thing is meant to be done together, and we got to make sure that we do it well. This year, I am sure all of us have a much better idea of what isolation is like than we ever did before, right? Everybody understands isolation a little bit better than we did a year ago. For some people, that was put on them. Some people chose that. Some people got there just because they were lazy. And I think even this idea of isolation and doing things on our own has crept into how we see God, how we see our brothers and sisters who are part of God's family, and even as we see our, our role in the kingdom. But what we will find and spend time talking through today is that this kingdom isn't a kingdom of one, but it's a kingdom of many. And how we treat our fellow citizens and how we think about our fellow citizens in this kingdom matters so, so much. The churchy word for it is the pursuit of unity within the church. And we have, have to get this right. It is imperative for us to get this right. And for some of you, hearing that news is like, ah, bummer. I was really hoping I could just do this on my own because when you start to bring other people into the mix, that's where things start to get messy, right? I'm sure every single one of us is both guilty of this and experienced this, where you've looked out over the past year and be like, man, some people are getting crazy out there, right? People are getting wild and I want nothing to do with that. So if I could just remove myself from all the craziness, that would be great. And that's a temptation that many of us have, but we need to recognize uh, that it is not just better, but necessary for us to have a clear understanding of what makes up this kingdom God's called us to and what our role is in it together as citizens. Now, this idea isn't just plucked out of thin air. That would, that would be a really bad way to go about this. But this idea is found firmly in Scripture, right? We talked about last week. This is everything that we talk about as we live out our lives needs to be rooted in Scripture. And honestly, there is a ton of Scripture that reinforces the importance of relationships and community and being co-citizens of this kingdom and how we are to interact with each other and treat each other from page one of Genesis all the way to the very end of Revelation. Like, we would never recommend you just flop open your Bible and pick a verse to read and live your life by that. But I would say, if you flopped open your Bible, chances are you're gonna find a verse that has some kind of reference to community and how we interact with each other. It's just everywhere in it. And so there's all kinds of stuff we could choose from, but I today want to draw our attention to a couple specific passages of Scripture. And the first one we're gonna find in the book of Ephesians. And so we're gonna go to Ephesians chapter two, and so if you want to follow along with me, that's awesome. If you have a physical Bible or a digital Bible, wonderful. Um, if you'd rather just listen, that's totally okay too. But we're going to read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. It gives us a really clear picture of exactly what we're trying to understand and talk about here. But as we discovered last week, when we approach the Bible, we need to make sure to do it in a way that doesn't put what we think into Scripture, but instead understands the author's intended meaning of Scripture. And so one of the things we can do is we can ask the, ask the question, why did this writer write this? And so the author of the letter of Ephesians is Paul. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. It was a big deal in the New Testament church. 
And uh, most likely, this was written to a group of believers, people who had already given their lives to Jesus in the city of Ephesus. That makes sense. There's a little bit of debate about it, but most people agree that's who he's writing to, this church, home church of these people who have given their lives to Jesus. And very often in the New Testament, when Paul writes letters to different places, because he wrote a lot of it, uh, he would write with like some specific issues in mind. Like he'd hear that there was some problem happening in this church over here. And so he'd write a letter addressing the problem and then give a bunch of really helpful information in the process. Or he'd, he'd realize that there's some big uh, issue or cultural thing that was happening over here. And so he would address that issue, give some instruction, and then add a whole bunch of other information. What's interesting about Ephesians is he doesn't write with a specific issue or problem to address, but rather to prepare these people to walk through whatever came their way. And we know this to be true, that every single church in the New Testament experienced a ton of persecution, experienced a fair amount of confusion, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the midst of this, especially as new as it was. So Paul was writing this to these people to help prepare them to walk through whatever situation was coming their way. And he wanted them to be rooted in what they knew to be true, but not just as individuals. He wanted them to be rooted in what they knew to be true together in a God-honoring, Christ-like community. So in other words, we could say it like this. He wanted to help them see how to be fellow citizens in this new kingdom that they were now a part of. And luckily for us, that's exactly the question that we have today. How do we be fellow citizens if we're going to take Jesus seriously that now we are part of his kingdom if we've given our lives over to him? And he says it really beautifully. And so we're going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 1. You're welcome to follow along. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So right out the gate, Paul makes it very clear that before Jesus, it's not like you were doing okay or your life wasn't quite what it could be. He makes it very clear. Before Jesus, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. There's nothing you could do about that. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but that's who you used to be. He says, following the course of this world, doing what made sense according to the rules of this world. And it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's another call out to that spiritual world that the enemy is not the person sitting next to you, that the, the war is waged in the spiritual world. Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying here, we were all in the same boat before we knew Jesus. We were all chasing our own passions, our own desires, doing what we thought were best was best, and we were all headed toward the same destruction. So everybody is in the exact same boat that you actually, before you know Jesus, have a lot in common with each other, even though we might not recognize it. But, verse 4, God being rich in mercy, he has a ton of it, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So even when we were dead, God's love motivated him to bring us to life through Jesus. It says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It says, you've been brought 
to life. And from that moment forward, it is a constant cycle of growth where you get to experience and be changed by the immeasurable kindness and grace that God has given us. It says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul makes it really clear that you cannot do anything. There's not a special set of actions or a special set of magic words that you can say or do to deserve the gift of grace that God has given us. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. It is a gift that God chose to give each and every one of us. The only thing we have to do is accept it. We need to put our faith in that gift that God has given us. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this grace that we could never earn and don't deserve, but was freely given to us because of what Jesus did on the cross, it does change what we do moving forward. So we can't earn this grace, but this grace changes how we do things in the here and now. So why take the time to read these first 10 verses of chapter 2? Because you might be sitting there and be like, I thought we were talking about how to interact with each other in the kingdom. You haven't really mentioned anything like that yet. So I think this is important because this lays out the reality that this is how every citizen of God's kingdom becomes a citizen of God's kingdom. No matter where they came from, where they lived, what they were like, when they lived, what they looked like, what their past was, this is the entrance into the kingdom by grace, a gift given to us through faith, putting our trust in him. So while we were in the same boat in our sin, likewise, we are also in the same boat in how we gained our citizenship. You see that distinction? We were similar to those around us when we were dead in our sin, and now we are also similar because of how we gained our citizenship by grace through faith. So keep that in mind as we read what Paul writes next. He says, therefore, because of all of this, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so what Paul is saying here, I'm not gonna explain what circumcision is, you can figure that out, but the big thing we need to know for this passage of scripture is it was the biggest distinction that you could find in that, in that time between the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, and literally anybody else. That was the massive, huge divide and distinction. And the, the Israelite people had this uh, benefit of having access to God, and they were expecting for a Messiah to come. They should have been on alert as soon as Jesus entered into the scene. But what Paul's saying here is, you Gentiles, people who didn't have this background knowledge that are separated by this big divide of circumcision, that you had no idea what was coming. And so you had no hope because you didn't even know you should be looking. He said, this is the situation that you found yourself in. Verse 13 is great news, though. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by his death and his resurrection. 14, for he himself is our peace. I love that. Oh, I sit on that every time I read it. 
because he doesn't just bring peace, doesn't just offer peace, man, he is our peace. In a world that is just riddled with anxiety, isn't it good news that Jesus is our peace and we have him living in us, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh through his crucifixion the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This was the big, what, what Paul's saying here is this was the big point of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews followed the law and followed the customs. They observed all the stuff and the Gentiles didn't. And so there was again this big divide. And even after people gave their lives to Jesus, there was still this huge divide between them because of that. Paul wants to make it really clear that those walls have come down. There was a literal physical wall in the temple that separated where the Jewish people could worship God and where the Gentiles could worship God. So this was, a, this was a mental picture that they'd be able to pull up in a second. And Paul says, no more. Jesus tore that sucker down. Don't you dare try to rebuild it. That's what he's saying here. And here's what this means for us. That not only did Jesus make our relationship with God right through his work on the cross, he made it possible for us to have right relationship with each other as well because of what he did on the cross. That's huge. Because of what Jesus has done, we can have unity with our brothers and sisters, the other people who are a part of this kingdom. And we have to go for that with everything we have. I don't know about you, but for me, oftentimes I think about unity among the, the, uh, the Christian family as kind of like a second tier issue. Like there's like upholding truth and there's like all these other really important things, but oftentimes unity kind of falls a couple slots in, in my list of priorities. And I think part of the reason is because I look around, I'm like, no one ever seems to be able to get there. And so I guess if we get around to it at some point, maybe we will, but Jesus died not only so that we could be forgiven our sins, but so that we could have real unity as well. And we're gonna get into that a little bit more here. It continues on by saying that he might create in himself one new man, one new person in place of the two. These two groups so different than each other. He says, Jesus' goal is to make you one new person, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that language too. It's not just like diminishing the hostility or like lessening the hostility. He killed it. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. This is what this is all building to. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are part of the family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. Those who got to physically see his work in ministry continuing on that information. And then every single person who has put their faith in Jesus from that point forward continues to build upon that. Building what? It says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man, that is a beautiful, beautiful picture 
of how church should look. That is a beautiful picture about how fellow citizens should look. But if I'm being honest, and maybe you can track with this uh, if you're watching as well, is as soon as I read something like that, I'm like, that is so awesome, and I want that for my life, but there's an instant, like, twing of skepticism, right? Because I look around at my life, and I look around at our churches, and I look around at the people that I interact with, and it's, it, I find myself asking the question, yeah, but is that even possible? Because it doesn't seem like we're very good at it very often, and it doesn't seem like it's something that we accomplish very often. I look around, and this picture of two becoming one, like Paul talks about, in Jesus isn't one that I get to see very often in my life or in the people around me. And so I get it. If you're feeling a little bit of skepticism that like unity can actually happen within the family of God, I get it. I get it. But if we take God seriously at his word, at these words, there are two big changes, I think, that need to be introduced into our thinking about those who are fellow citizens of this kingdom that we are a part of. There are two big therefores that I would like to point out. And I think these two therefores, these two uh, kind of action steps out of this, these two different ways of thinking, they will do two things. They'll both get us headed down the right direction. And I think that as soon as we embrace them, we're gonna see that they have a lot of real world applications on how we treat people and how we change how we see people. So two things that, I would like to draw our attention to that I think will be helpful as we try to figure out how to live as co-citizens, fellow citizens of this kingdom that God has called us to and that we've been talking about. The first one is this, that what God is building, this, this home, this household that they talk about with Jesus as the foundation and everybody else continuing to build it, what God is building is far bigger and far more unique and far more diverse than we realize. The, the home that God is building is way bigger than we realize and maybe we're comfortable with, to be quite honest. That our family, our new family in Jesus, our fellow citizens, as Paul states it, is so much bigger than just the people who sit next to us at church, who happen to look a lot like us, who happen to think exactly like us. This, this picture of this home that's being built is so much bigger than that. And to be quite honest, a lot of our gut reaction to that is like, I, I would rather you not mess with that. I don't particularly like that because it makes it messy. It's hard to control. Like, what if we sacrifice things we shouldn't sacrifice in the process? It's time-consuming. And it requires that we think critically and we check our own hearts constantly. And it lands us in this place where everything is not as cut and dry as we might prefer for it to be. I think that there are so many churches, too many churches, and I do not want it to be this church. We cannot let it be this church. There's too many churches that are willing to settle for some lame, prefabricated shed that you buy out of the parking lot at Home Depot that looks like every other shed, and you know exactly what's going on in there. We are way too willing to settle for that rather than embrace this big, kind of weird, kind of unique, kind of messy, beautiful building home that God is building for those who are part of his kingdom. I think the reason that we are so willing to settle for that is because when we interact with other people, especially when we are on different pages about things, we end up kind of going to either conflict mode or we remove them out of the situation altogether. And that's how those prefabricated sheds are built. Let me give you an example that I'm sure you're all familiar with. There's this, there's this kind of popular website, Facebook, 
You've heard of it. Yes, it's a, it's a thing, right? Um, I have this weird like love-hate relationship with Facebook because I enjoy sharing pictures of my family and stuff like that. And it reminds me when a year goes by, and that's always exciting. Um, but I also have this other tension with Facebook because I don't know if you've been on there recently, but people get wild on Facebook, right? Like, people just post the most inflammatory stuff, and I think the anonymity, like, emboldens people, and people are, it's a dumpster fire, man. It is like a terrible, terrible landscape at times, and I just have to confess something to you, and you can think what you want about me and cast judgment if you need to. I love it. I love it. I cannot wait. Anytime I hear of somebody posting some inflammatory thing, I'm like, oh, let's go check out the comment section. I cannot wait to see this. I... I don't know where it comes from. You can pray for me, but I love it. I love it. And so I have this, uh, I feel like I have a pretty good balance on Facebook. I have people in my life that have kind of accumulated in my life as time has gone on who have really strong opinions about pick a single issue that's happened over the past year. I have people in my Facebook friend list who are really, really intense on one side or really, really intense on the other. And it seems like anytime one of those people posts something inflammatory, uh, it goes one of two ways, and it seems to only be able to go one of two ways. Either it's like instant conflict, like people are like commenting at each other and being passive aggressive, and sometimes just like yelling at each other, all caps all the time, you know, and, and it's like this big fight from the very, very beginning. So it, that, either that happens or the other, the other outcome that happens sometimes is someone will post something in, inflammatory, and it's just this massive echo chamber. Not a single person like pushes back or has a disagreement. It's just constantly, yeah, you tell them. Everybody else are idiots. You know what you're talking about. You speak truth. Good for you. Good for you. And it seems like those are the only two <laughs> outcomes from a post on Facebook these days. And the reason is because it's so much easier to control whether, whether you choose to just fight back anything that feels different than what you're used to or you only surround yourself with people who think exactly the way you do. And I think many of us are guilty of that when it comes to interacting with our fellow citizens of the kingdom. Either we're ready to fight because you're wrong and you need to know that you're wrong and you need to start thinking differently about this. Or we just remove you out of the equation altogether and just surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us. I'll, I won't mince, mince words. When we do that, we are being incredibly arrogant. We're being incredibly arrogant. Because what we are saying is us in our little piece of the world over here, we have the corner on what it actually looks like to follow Jesus, and all the rest of you are wrong. I think for us to actually live out the calling of being a citizen of God's kingdom together in a way that's helpful, in a way that's compelling to a world watching, is we have we absolutely have to be willing to humble ourselves and to recognize that this home that God is building is so much bigger than what we think it is. So much bigger than what we think it is. It means that we can learn from each other and others can learn from us. I mean, let's, let's, let's be real. Like our church, this actual physical church in Modesto, we have a lot to learn about living in the power of the Holy Spirit from our Pentecostal fellow citizens down the road. Hey, we got one in the crowd too. Let's hear it. Awesome. We have, we have a lot we can learn about reverence from our high church brothers and sisters, fellow citizens. Uh, we, we have a lot to learn about evangelism from this, a small church on the west side of Modesto that we don't even know their names, but their entire community would be devastated if that church shut its doors because of how they're impacting and caring for that community. We have ways we can learn from them. 
and they have ways that they can learn from us. But we have to be willing to see the big picture. And when we do, we will be changed. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I've had the opportunity to see fellow citizens of our kingdom all over the world. And let me tell you, I have learned more about passion for the lost from our fellow citizens in Guatemala who have given up everything to make sure that everywhere in that country hears about Jesus. I've learned more about repentance from our fellow citizens in these tiny mountain villages in Peru where these women just are weeping, like ugly crying, weeping over their sin and over what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. I've learned more about perseverance from our fellow citizens in Haiti, in a country that never catches a break. It's just one thing after another in that place. It just makes it worse and worse and worse. Yet these people know how to persevere. I've learned more about commitment from our fellow citizens in Honduras, who their two options in life is join a gang or give their life over to Jesus. And the gangs are making sure that when they give their life over to Jesus, they stick on that path. I've learned more about just the willingness to say yes from our fellow citizens in Myanmar, a friend of mine named Cyrus, who said to his wife one day, if a kid shows up here, we're just gonna say yes. If we have food, we'll feed him. If we have a place for them to sleep, we'll let him. But it doesn't matter if we don't have any of that, we'll just say yes. By the way, this crew of people in Myanmar, Cyrus, his wife, and their 30 kids that they have in their home, they're on the run. They're hiding in the mountains because of the military coup in that country right now but they were willing to say yes. How in the world can we sit here in this building and assume that we have nothing to learn from our fellow citizens down the street or on the other side of the planet? It's arrogant. We got to stop it. We've got to stop it. Just like Paul says, there is now no wall between the Jews and Gentiles, which was the biggest distinction that you could find in the Bible, then why are we so intent on putting up walls that Jesus died to tear down? We don't get to do that. We don't get to do that if we actually say that Jesus is king. So let's ruffle all of our feathers here for just a second. That means that the person who jumped the border on the border of California or Texas or Mexico, if they've surrendered their life to Jesus, they're part of this family, our family. The border patrol officer who picked them up and took them to a detention center or holding center, if they've given their lives to Jesus, they're part of our family. The police officer that was in riot gear all summer long dealing with that, if they've given their life to Jesus, they're part of this family. The person on the other side of the line who is protesting, if they've given their lives to Jesus, they're part of this family. The hypermaskers, the anti-maskers, the Republicans, the Democrats, all the second-tier theological things, all these things that we love to find and say, this is the divide, pick your side. As followers of Jesus, we need to recognize if they're part of the kingdom, they're part of our family. And they're part of what God is building in this world, something that's much bigger than maybe we're used to. So when we say together that Jesus is king, we are fellow citizens of this kingdom. We're part of this big, weird, messy, beautiful home that he's creating. So let's see people like that. Let's see this for what it is and then act accordingly. But it's not only bigger than we realize. What God is building is also incredibly compelling to the world around us. Super compelling. See, when we are good at this, when we know how to interact with each other, it's really compelling. And when we're not, it's absolutely devastating. Here's why. Jesus thought so. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. 
And he's praying about his disciples specifically, among a few other things. And then he turns his attention to us, everyone who would come after this. In verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's the type of unity Jesus prayed to the Father that we would have, the same kind of unity that he has with the Father. We don't got time. We're already over time. We don't got time to go into Trinitarian theology, but just rest assured, Jesus and God, they are on the same page all the time. That's the same type of unity he desires for us as fellow citizens. That's huge. It says that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is this so important? Because this is how people see who Jesus is, by how we interact with each other. This is straight from Jesus' mouth. He's like, this is how people will know. How often do we stop and consider if our interactions with a fellow citizen of God's kingdom will be, will, will, reflect will show an accurate picture of who Jesus is? Or is how we're interacting giving them a totally different picture of who he is? The world is watching us, and we need, and we need to take this seriously. See, when they look at us, unity is what they should see. It should be the distinction. It should be all over us. In fact, it should be the first thing that people notice. I don't know if you've ever met somebody where they barely have to open their mouth, maybe don't even have to open their mouth at all, but before long, you're like, oh, I know exactly where you're from. I don't know if you've had that experience before. Let me give you an example. Uh, when Megan and I, we went to Thailand a few years ago for our 10-year anniversary. It was awesome. And when we go places, we always try to pretend not to be tourists. We try to do things to make it seem like the least touristy possible. And so we asked a friend who lived there, hey, is there some hike that we could go on that's not very touristy? She's like, oh, this is a great place. Hardly anyone ever goes up there. We go on this hike. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. We're sitting up there kind of away from the world on a different side of the planet. We're really enjoying it. And all of a sudden, we hear this, these two really loud male voices just like yelling as they're coming up the trail. And instantly, we're both like, oh, those dudes have to be American. Like, they just, they have to be from the United States. We can own that. I'm from America. We are a loud bunch, okay? We can recognize this. We're like, they have to be from America. And pretty soon, they crash through the bushes. And uh, these are the, this is the site that, that we see. There's these guys in these, like, athletic shorts that are a fashion. I would never wear shorts this short if it was me. But... It's a fashion. One guy didn't have a shirt on. The other guy had like this like pastel, like neon pink, like super thin uh, tank top. They're the type of guys that look like they've spent a ton of time lifting weights, but maybe skipped leg day like a lot. And, uh, and not, a, not like no body hair on this guy's upper body. And I'm just like, I turned to Megan. And I was like, I would bet money these guys are from Florida. I just, I just have this feeling these guys are from Florida. And they come over, they got like their Ray-Bans on, and, and they, they come over and they start talking to us and take a wild guess where these guys are from. Miami. They're from Miami. And it's like, of course you're from Miami. You just ooze Miami. Of course that's you. Before you even open your mouth, I knew, I knew you were from Florida. You just had that vibe. You had that distinction. And the reality is, for us, as followers of Jesus, people should notice our unity before we even open our mouths about who Jesus is. When they see us, that should be the distinction that they see. Are they? It's a good question. Now, here's the deal. If this was all just a theory or concept, it'd be nice and fine. 
but it wouldn't impact how we actually go through our lives. The good news is that this is not just a concept. This actually affects how people live their life. And we have a story of a woman in our church named Lynn who saw an accurate picture of what this family should look like, what these citizens of this kingdom should look like. And she's gonna share a little bit about how that changed and impacted her life. So you can turn your attention to the screen and listen to Lynn's story. It's pretty powerful. Hi, my name is Lynn, and I'm from Paradise, California. I moved there when my mother was sick with breast cancer, and I took care of her. She passed away, and then October 1st of 18, my husband passed away, and then on November 8th um, is when the fire happened and took out the whole town. I was woken from a deep sleep and told that I had less than a minute to get out of my house and grab anything that I could. I grabbed my dog. I got stuck up there for almost eight hours um, with fire. Fire was burning on both sides so hot that you could feel the temperature in the car to where you were sweating from the heat. These are pictures that we took of the devastation that all of us went through. Um, pictures of what was left of my house and that was nothing. I was really scared and prayed God, please don't let me die in fire. But at that point, with all of the loss that I had experienced in paradise, it was in my mom, my husband, and my home. I had nothing. And I felt like God had just given up on me, taken everything away. I came to, um, to Modesto. I didn't know anybody, not a soul. Um, and my kids had found me a little apartment and we found um, a grief share group um, here at uh, Crosspoint. And I continued to go to the grief share group and met my angel. Um, Joyce Townsend was the chaplain there and she basically took me under her wing. Um, she took me places, made me accountable for going to church and helped me get involved in different groups here at Crosspoint. She brought me to a home group meeting and when I walked in, I thought, there's no way these people are gonna accept me. I mean, their beliefs in God were very strong. And at that point, I still had thought God gave up on me. I was alone. I didn't know what to do. And these people just welcomed me, no matter what difficulties I was having, where my head was at as far as 
um, God being a part of my life and gave me a new family. There are more people in my life through all of the groups, through Crosspoint, than I could imagine. Um, in the last year, my 10-year-old granddaughter was diagnosed with cancer, as well as my sister. And I believe that God got me through that. And both of them are in remission and the family's been blessed. My new family. Man, what a beautiful picture of someone who had experienced all kinds of loss, getting connected with someone who had such a different life than theirs, but saw something compelling about those people, and someone who is a part of this family now as a result. Man, when I watch that video, it, it messes with me a little bit, because that is such a beautiful picture, and that is how we are supposed to work. That is how the church is supposed to work. And that's awesome. And, and on the one hand, it so encourages me because that means that there are groups and there are people in this church, this local church here, who are doing exactly that, who are seeing those around them much bigger maybe than they realize and who are acting in a way where it's compelling for people to put their trust in Jesus. And that is so encouraging to me. But I also feel like there's this other side of the situation, that, that there's these really cool stories we can share, but is that the exception or is that the rule? Because I'll be quite honest, I don't think unity was something that we excelled at over the last year, certainly not as the North American church. I don't think unity was something we did a great job with. And listen, this is just me saying this. This is not out of scripture. This is one pastor's opinion, so take it as that. But it leads me at times when I've watched how we have interacted over the last year, especially in this country. And it makes me think, I kind of hope that the world wasn't watching that close over the last year. Because I'm a little bit worried about who they think Jesus is if they were. I totally believe that as the North American church, especially, maybe everywhere, that we have a lot of trust to build, to rebuild with the world that is watching. And we have to do it. We have to get this right because the stakes are too high. Now, good news, it's possible because Jesus died his death on a cross and he defeated death through his resurrection, which means those walls can come down and this is possible. I have all the hope in the world that this is possible, but we have to commit ourselves to it, to love each other, be patient with each other, correct each other, have each other's backs, to not shortchange God's family with our ideas of who's in and who's out, to see God's family bigger than we realize and then act accordingly in a way that's compelling to those who are watching. And so, you know, if you're doing this already, man, don't, don't heap stuff on that doesn't need to be there. But if you're anything like me, it's worth asking the question, and was I a picture of unity over this past year, 
or does some stuff need to change? Now, I know I didn't give you practical steps as we walk out of here. Well, this is how I deal with the conflict in my life because I don't think we're even there yet. (laughs) I think we need to change how we see each other before we ever hope to change how we treat each other. And that's the opportunity that we have this morning. We actually have a pretty cool opportunity to sit on this a little bit because we're gonna be taking communion this morning. And so often when we take communion, uh, it's really easy to just think of it as the individual, like we talked about at the beginning of this, that Jesus died so that my sins individually can be forgiven and his body was broken and his blood was poured out. And that's all true and that's all worth remembering. But today we also have the opportunity to remember that what Jesus has done through his death wasn't just for us as individuals, but it also made it possible for us to have right relationship with each other a family that builds this home that is beautiful, that is quirky and messy, but beautiful. And this picture of who Jesus is to a world who is watching and so desperately needs what we have. Jesus obviously cared a ton about us being unified. He prayed it and at times it feels like that prayer wasn't answered. But I think we have the opportunity now to live like it was. Because I don't think he would have prayed it if it wasn't possible but it's gonna take us deciding right here, right now, to change how we see each other. And we have a chance to do that as we observe communion this morning. So would you pray for me as we prepare our hearts to do that? Jesus, thank you so much. We can't say it enough. Thank you so much for what you've done. Lord, if you hadn't done what you did, if you hadn't died on the cross, not only would our sins still be in control of us, but there'd be no hope for us to have relationship with each other, good relationship, the way that, that you intended for us to have. So thank you, God. Lord, I pray that as we think about our pursuit of unity in this life and in our church and in our broader Christian community, God, that we would understand how vitally important this is. Lord, that we would not major on things we don't need to major on, that we would cling tightly to the absolutes that make us different from the world. God, that we would be humble, that we would learn from each other, that we would see this family for what it is and get to see this kingdom go into every nook and cranny of this planet. And that through us and how we treat each other, show a beautiful and full picture of exactly how you feel about the world. We love you. God, we thank you. Continue to work in us this morning as we remember your sacrifice in your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.